Welcome to the Seriously Funny Music Podcast, the show where we talk about funny music and explore why it can often go underappreciated. In each episode, we'll focus on one artist and one academic concept to illustrate this point. This episode is about Frank Zappa and lowbrow humor. Frank Zappa's discography is enormous. Including his work with the Mothers of Invention and all his posthumous releases, there are, at this time, a grand total of 119 albums of his material available for your listening pleasure. So to write a thorough explanation of his artistry would be nearly impossible due to the sheer quantity as well as variety of it. His music is not easily categorizable, taking elements from rock, jazz, and contemporary classical music. However, what I will attempt to do is give my take on one important but complex aspect of Zappa's work. His complicated relationship with humor. Frank Zappa is often included in lists of funny musical artists, but he's not a comedian or even what most would consider a comedic musician. But undoubtedly, humor is an appealing aspect of many of his songs. For example, the absurd and bodily humor of Stick It Out, toilet humor like that found in Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, or sexual grotesqueries like those in Bobby Brown Goes Down. I got a cheerleader here who wants to help with my paper Let her do all the work and maybe later I'll rave her Oh God, I am the American dream I do not think I'm too extreme And I'm a handsome son of a bitch I'm gonna get a good job and be Songs like these that use lowbrow and broad humor make Frank an easy target for those who decry the use, or overuse, of humor in music. I say overuse because I believe that it's fairly easy to accept small doses of it, as in the occasional novelty song mixed into a catalog of more serious music, or within smart types of humor, like satire, particularly if there is a positive ethical message encoded within it. While Zappa's catalog does have some of these songs too, for example, Brown Shoes Don't Make It or Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk, I believe his musical humor legacy is most remembered for his mean-spirited parodies and gross-out jokes. In particular, the Flo and Eddie era of the Mothers Band is largely regarded as a low point in maturity. This vexes diehard Zappa fans to no end. They appreciate that his work has much more depth and variety than could hardly be reduced to such a crude explanation. Because of this, many Zappa fans, in order to salvage his image from the stain of comedy, will often overcompensate and focus too heavily on the more aesthetically acceptable aspects of his artistry. For example, his virtuosic guitar playing, unyielding work ethic, and complex compositions and arrangements. There's certainly no arguing that he was not skilled in these areas, but in my opinion, you don't get to pick and choose like that. If you want to defend Zappa, you take all the baggage that comes with him as well. Zappa himself, as we'll discuss later, also sought to minimize the importance of the more offensive and indefensible elements of his music. Let's talk now about the lowbrow. Merriam-Webster defines lowbrow as of, relating to, or suitable for a person with little taste or intellectual interest. It's the antithesis of highbrow, the culture of the elite and learned upper class. The relationship between these two sides is complex and has changed over time. For example, the history of opera demonstrates how what is currently regarded as a highbrow art form was once the opposite. Opera concerts used to be variety shows with singing, acting, and lowbrow comedy interspersed throughout and were attended by people of all economic backgrounds. It was not until the late 19th century that there was an intentional and explicit division of taste enacted in order to set apart the upper classes from the lowly poor immigrants and working class. This is when operas moved to the concert hall and became black-tie affairs. 
See also the history of jazz music starting as a lowbrow genre and eventually becoming appropriated by the upper class. This division of taste can be understood as distinction, as it was explicated by French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu in the 1960s. He wrote that our cultural choices define who we are as individuals and our social and economic backgrounds play a significant role in these choices. Persons with higher cultural and economic capital are more able to seek out obscure and esoteric forms of culture, whereas the lower class generally have less time, money, and energy to commit to this pursuit and are largely satisfied with the most popular and accessible forms. More recently, historically, there has been a greater acknowledgement of the middlebrow taste as well, including some works of pop music, prestige television, and blockbuster films. From a purely technical standpoint, mainstream popularity runs contrary to distinction. If everyone can appreciate something, then it has no exclusive cachet to it that works in one's favor. So works of popular culture are, for the most part, not seen as being highly appealing aesthetically. This idea can also roughly explain the perceived difference between art and entertainment. Art is somehow more difficult to appreciate, requiring prolonged contemplation and cultural education to get it. On the other hand, consider something like the work of the Three Stooges. Their brand of slapstick comedy is enjoyed by children and adults alike. If everyone can appreciate the Three Stooges, then it cannot be highbrow, the exclusive domain of the rich and powerful. It's also harder to make the case for it than as art. Not that the Stooges necessarily were seeking aesthetic approval. Although, those who believe that timelessness is the mark of great art might do well to reconsider the Three Stooges, as their work is still quite funny today, decades after its inception. Listen to the They Might Be Giants novelty song episode for more on the discussion of ephemerality versus timelessness in art. Take the stand. Where did I put it? No, no, take the stand. I got it, now what will I do with it? Lowbrow humor has a focus on the silly or sometimes lewd. As with other forms of lowbrow culture, it is intended for a widespread audience who needs little cultural context or academic knowledge to appreciate it. The presumption is that the primary and sometimes exclusive goal of this type of humor is to evoke laughter, as opposed to, say, a higher form of comedy like satire that might be intended to make you think or teach a moral lesson, the latter being more easily endorsable from an aesthetic standpoint. Philosophical theories like ethical aestheticism explain that being explicitly morally positive is almost always a necessity of good art. Check out the episode on Childish Gambino and ethical aestheticism for further discussion on that topic. This is why many Zappa fans focus on his instrumental and composerly skills rather than his usage of humor, or at the very least they downplay it. The recent Zappa documentary by Alex Winters conveniently almost entirely leaves out any discussion of Frank's lowbrow jokes. A similar image rehabilitation can be seen in Charlie Chaplin's legacy. Much retrospective praise of Chaplin focuses on the satirical nature of his films and downplays their more physical and vulgar elements, which are of course what made them so beloved and popular in the first place. Another important concept to better understand Zappa's persona and legacy is the superiority theory of humor. The superiority theory's main thesis is that whenever we laugh, it is at something or someone else's expense, the butt of the joke. This idea traces all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and to this day remains one reason why humor is often looked at suspiciously. 
It's mean-spirited, or at least may seem that way, and is ethically in a gray area at best. While, in my opinion, superiority theory is not a comprehensive explanation of all humor, it does explain some important elements of Frank Zappa's artistry and the critical reaction to it. When Frank parodies other artists or genres, like on his doo-wop album, Reuben and the Jets, you get the feeling that he isn't celebrating the genre, but mocking it, punching down on the originators. And although it seems he does have some appreciation of the source material, he also intimates that it is below him. In his autobiography, he refers to doo-wop as having a Cretan simplicity, and says the words he wrote for Reuben are of a sub-mongoloid level, in order to match up with his expectations of the genre. It's difficult to reconcile his genuine appreciation of doo-wop with this snide attitude, and it's certainly easier to dismiss his appreciation entirely, rather than try to make sense of his complicated relationship with this form of popular music. That was a clip from his song Stuff Up the Cracks from the Rubin album. The extremely melodramatic subject matter, overly simplistic lyrics, and humorously affected background vocals make it difficult to read this song as any kind of tribute. As a point of contrast, one of the most notable modern composers of parody songs, Weird Al Yankovic, is praised for his tributes to the original artists. With few exceptions, his parodies are rarely heard as mean-spirited taunts of the originals, Rather, his are understood as respectful tributes to the source material, which he even asks permission from the original artist to do. Yankovic is primarily known for his direct parodies, one-to-one spoofs of another song, but he's also written many style parodies based on an artist's general sound, including one in honor of Frank Zappa entitled Genius in France. People say I'm a geek, a moronic little freak, an annoying pipsqueak with an unfortunate physique. If I was any dumber, they'd have to water me twice a week. But when the mademoiselle see me, they all swoon and shriek. They take my mystique. Although the fact that Yankovic's parodies are so polite could also be seen as a negative, in that he's so concerned with being offensive or inappropriate that there is a practical limit to what he can accomplish artistically. He rarely makes statements about politics or social issues in his music. Parody is always understood in its relationship to the original work from which it is derived, and is at risk of being aesthetically devalued as such. This is because it calls into question the romantic notion of the artist as a lone and exceptional genius, and adding in what we know about the superiority theory of humor makes it easy to hear a parody song as malicious. This is why Weird Al goes so far out of his way to assure you that he means no harm. Of course, this superior attitude is open to the interpretation of the listener. But Zappa, as we'll see, doesn't do himself any favors. In fact, he often seems to go out of his way to cause controversy and confusion. In his song Flakes, Zappa band member Adrian Ballou tries out his Bob Dylan impression. Is this aping of Bob Dylan mean-spirited or simply goofing around? Although it seems that Zappa did have some reverence for Bob, it's perhaps not apparent in this recording. Crazy till your head'll go 
Aside from the potentially mean-spirited content of Zappa's songs, it's clear from many of his interviews, speeches, and writings that he did feel himself to be musically superior to, well, almost everyone. He was often resentful that he had to write and release music that was palatable to anyone other than himself. In his autobiography, he notes that his preference would be to write only instrumental music if he could, writing, Apart from the snide political stuff, which I enjoy writing, the rest of the lyrics wouldn't exist at all if it weren't for the fact that we live in a society where instrumental music is irrelevant. So if a guy expects to earn a living by providing musical entertainment for folks in the USA, he better figure out how to do something with a human voice plopped on it. This quote also shows another important aspect of his character. Frank Zappa was a savvy businessman. The artistic choices that he made were, in no small part, informed by the economic realities of the music business. This may be problematic as it goes against an idealistic perception that art should or does exist in some world devoid of economics. Music critic Richard Kostelanitz wrote about Zappa's April 20th, 1969 show at the Fillmore East, saying that, Zappa presents himself as a complicated personality with contrary ambitions. He evidently despises capitalism and yet expects to make a lot of money. He is an advertising agency that so far promotes mostly himself, and in an interview I heard recently on WRVR-FM, his haughtiness was repelling. As a society, especially in Zappa's prime era, we tended to endorse artists who are identifiable as authentic. Authentic artists are prized for allegedly expressing some kind of inner self-truth through their work and not following trends or making decisions based on economic logic. We know that this is a fallacy, but as consumers, we often prefer to believe this lie whenever possible. However, Zappa never gave us that option. He was entirely upfront about his financial motivations, and he used lowbrow comedy and an absurd Dadaist aesthetic to shock audiences out of their complacency. In my opinion, this is one of the most commendable things about him as an artist and should not be a mark against him. Although he might not have wanted to write them, Frank did cite his success with his more lowbrow hits like Dynamo Hum and Titties and Beer as a good thing because it allowed him to finance his real artistic passion, writing and recording orchestral music such as Bogus Pomp. To him, writing recognizably pop music was a means to an end, a financial necessity he had to do in order to do the projects that he actually wanted to do. And while Frank scorned popular culture, he seemed to have equally as much disdain for music academies and the art music world. In a 1984 address to the American Society of University Composers, or ASUC, Zappa asked, Why do people continue to compose music and even pretend to teach others how to do it when they already know the answer, nobody gives a fuck? There's a real resentment in Frank's tone. He's forced to wallow in the depths of popular music so that he can occasionally get his foot in the world of serious composers, but when he gets there, he has no respect for their milieu either. Interestingly, some of Zappa's liner notes from his serious classical art music records include verbiage rejecting the idea of art music as anything other than entertainment. The division between art music and popular music is largely arbitrary. Remember that it was an intentional division not all that long ago. And to think that either of them do not have to engage with entertainment is a pretentious fallacy. On this point, I entirely agree with Frank and appreciate his recognition of this idea, even if elsewhere he seems to contradict his own sentiments. 
I attribute some of Zappa's combative attitude to a type of self-conscious defensiveness. As a self-taught composer and instrumentalist who never finished college, he seemed to always be out to prove his level of intelligence, musical or otherwise. He didn't want to be mistaken for a normal rock or pop artist, where a higher education is disregarded or even disdained. But as a serious artist, his autodidacticism meant he had to work extra hard to be taken seriously. Yet, even when he was given some recognition, like being asked to give the keynote speech at ASUC, he used that opportunity to take his ire out on them as well. His fan defenders also seemed to be active on this front, often pointing to his intelligence and eloquence, citing his congressional address on censorship and his time as an ambassador to Czechoslovakia in his defense, as if certifying his intelligence is essential to legitimizing his art. It's as though they are saying, yes, Frank Zappa was sometimes silly or gross, but it was the intentional choice of a musical genius, so we can allow it. But the unfortunate reality is often that the desire to be taken seriously and the inclusion of or over-reliance on humor are often seen as being at odds with one another. Zappa is an intelligent, articulate, original, and funny artist. Being funny does not contradict any of the other traits. But also, being intelligent does not trump any deficiencies elsewhere, such as morally objectionable lyrical content. What I find most unfortunate in the case of Frank Zappa is his own reluctance to embrace the lowbrow elements of his music, as it's such a large part of his artistry. I believe in part this is a product of his time, the rockism of the late 1960s and 70s prized authenticity and overly serious confessional songwriting. Not only did he not participate in those ideals, his music often was an explicit critique of them. But since he really never stood by his own work as being anything more than a reactionary statement or a financial necessity, it's difficult as a fan of his music to defend it when the artist so outspokenly dismissed it himself. English professor and writer Ian Ellis, in his book Rebel's Wit Attitude, Subversive Rock Humorists, points to both Frank Zappa and Lou Reed as cynics of countercultural hippies who harnessed humor as a weapon rather than as a whim. Where I think the two differ, though, is that Reed is seen as a more poetic and introspective artist, one who is less tied up with parody as well as lowbrow humor. Reed was also less outspoken about the economic realities of being a rock star, instead cultivating a more mysterious, yet often equally combative persona. See his interviews with Lester Banks for proof of that. Ironically, by being more truly authentic and transparent about his process and motivation, Zappa may be seen as the less authentic of the two artists. Sleeping out on the street, oh, living all alone, without a house or a home, and then she asks you, please. Hey, baby, can I have some spare change? Oh, can I break your heart? I'd like to pose this question. If Frank Zappa was just starting his career today, would there be a more open-minded appreciation of his work? The Poptimism movement of recent decades brought with it a critical and academic regard for the line blurring between art and entertainment, high and lowbrow. While Poptimism brings with it its own inherent issues, like potentially giving too much credit to unworthy art for fear of being labeled pretentious, I think the more general appreciation of low- and middlebrow culture is a good thing. There have even been sociological studies showing that highbrow taste has moved from one of elite snobbishness to a culture of omnivorousness. 
Yet other studies specifically investigating comedic tastes have shown that the higher classes still are strongly dismissive of lowbrow comedy. The fact that those possessing higher social and economic capital are able to selectively appropriate some lowbrow works and not others is an indication of how distinction still persists in the modern age. But there is some evidence of progress. I think the relative popularity of contemporary artists like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, A Hundred Gex, and Thundercat have shown the public's willingness to embrace music that is less easily pigeonholed and that embraces humor. I'm sure these groups would cite Zappa as an influence on both his technically precise arrangements and the often absurd nature of his lyrics. Thundercat, in his song Captain Stupido, uses a very Zappa-esque lyrical humor, as well as sound effects over an impressive jazz fusion arrangement. The juxtaposition of high and lowbrow helps to enhance the inherent humorousness of the track. So would modern-day Zappa, finding a more hospitable attitude towards the lowbrow, more proudly stand behind his funnier songs? Or would he, always the contrarian, have to find a new way to rebel against the now acceptable cultural mainstream? Who knows? The only thing that is for sure is that, as long as comedic art is seen as less aesthetically pleasing than its unfunny counterpart, we're doing a disservice to a lot of great artists by automatically relegating them to a lower cultural tier. Zappa was able to distinguish himself and be heard by strategically leaning into what was unacceptable or uncultured, shocking audiences and critics with lowbrow humor to get their attention, and then perhaps enticing them to stick around and see what else he had in store. His complex artistic legacy can be difficult to make logical sense of, but is a rewarding treasure trove of inspired and incredibly original music. You, by your fans or by the public, they don't know how to take you. Either a genius, thought of by some people, or someone who's a little bit uh, risque, how would you prefer? Well, I mean, what's wrong with being risque, you know? Nothing. I think that what I do is wonderful, it doesn't hurt anybody, and uh, people like to have uh, a good time, and we're here to entertain them, so... What's the difference? Does humor belong in music? I think so. It belongs in everyday life, unless uh, the Republicans want to take it away. The Seriously Funny Music Podcast was written and produced by Scott Greenberg, and is an adaptation of his master's thesis, The Apparent Bias Against Comedic Popular Music. Follow Scott on all social media and streaming platforms at Scott Making Sense. That's sense like money.